Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. This is Mike Wong, your host, and I am thrilled to be bringing you a truly exciting and informative episode. But before we get to today's interview, I want to alert you to the fact that Elise Cutts and I were recently guests of Justin Ozer's on episode 237 of Earl Grey. Trek FM's Star Trek The Next Generation podcast. There, we talk about the seminal TNG episode The Chase and the scientific concept of panspermia, the idea that primitive life can spread about the cosmos, hopping between worlds. So I encourage you to go check out episode 237 of Earl Grey and everything else that the Trek FM network has to offer. And now, it's my great honor to introduce you to one of the luminaries of planetary science and astrobiology, a man who, like me, has made it his goal to understand the possibilities for life elsewhere in the universe. So in my last episode of Strange New Worlds, I mentioned that I had just started an exciting new project, revising a textbook called Astrobiology, a Multidisciplinary Approach. And today I'm sitting across from the man with whom I'm working on that project. Indeed, the man who gave me this wonderful opportunity, Professor Jonathan Lunin. So Jonathan, let's start off with a brief introduction. Why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Okay, thank you, Mike. I am the uh, David C. Duncan Professor in the Physical Sciences at Cornell University. That's actually the chair that Carl Sagan held many years ago. I also direct what's called the Cornell Center for Astrophysics and Planetary Science, where we have a lot of researchers uh, who work on astrophysics and and solar system studies in addition to the uh, faculty. And um, I work on solar system exploration, the planets, how they form, uh, how they evolve, whether there's life there, whether there are habitable environments in or on top of some of these moons. And um, it's a lot of fun because we have all these fantastic missions going on. So you mentioned that you have the chair that Carl Sagan once held. Have you met Professor Sagan? Have you worked with him? I did meet Carl Sagan, and I actually corresponded with him when I was a junior high school student. Really? What we call middle school today, yeah. (laughs) So here's how this happened. I was always interested in space, and I was a subscriber in middle school and high school to Sky and Telescope magazine, and then also Astronomy magazine. Sky and Telescope in 1973 had a book review of a book called The Cosmic Connection an extraterrestrial perspective by uh, someone named Carl Sagan. So, uh, of course, Amazon Prime did not exist in 1973, (laughs) so I ordered the book by mail, and sometime later it arrived, and I read it, and I was totally transformed, just carried away by this book. In fact, so much so that I would read excerpts to my mother, who was interested in science, but less so than me. And finally, after enough of these excerpts, she said, why don't you write to Professor Sagan? And I said, that's ridiculous. He's a famous professor. He's not going to write back. She said, write to him. <laughs> so, uh, okay, you do what your mother says. Uh, I wrote a letter, and uh, he wrote back. He sent me an envelope from what was then called the Cornell Center for Radiophysics and Space Research. 
which is now the center that I direct. And in it were two reprints from the Mariner 9 mission, uh, images of Phobos and Deimos he had analyzed, and a two-page letter telling me what to do to become an astronomer. And all of this was like artifacts from, you know, some, some treasure chest. And I just, you know, I, I looked at the reprints, I smelled them, <laughs> I read them, I read the letter over and over, and it started a correspondence, which continued. And then much, much later, I interacted with him as a grad student at the Natural Satellites meeting in Ithaca, New York in 1983. And then we interacted as colleagues briefly on Cassini. Of course, he passed away in uh, 1996, way too soon, but we did have a chance to interact on Titan, and uh, that was really a joy as well. That's really amazing. Yeah. Wow. Do you remember what that letter said, uh, advice? I do, uh, and actually the letter, a copy of the letter is deposited, among others, in the archive that the Library of Congress has. They, they took all of Carl's papers, Andrewian, who is his widow, and Seth MacFarlane, who is the producer of the new Cosmos series, worked to get the library to take his papers, and, and they have them now, which is great. So the letter thanked me for my letter. Carl said that uh, he thought it was great that I wanted to be an astronomer. Uh, I had asked what I should do to, to major in it, and he the irony in, in the letter is that he explained that Cornell did not have an astronomy major because really what one had to do to become an astronomer was major in physics, mm. and he said, do really well in high school math and physics, plan on you know, majoring in physics, and then going on to grad school, and he provided some detailed advice on that. Now, subsequently, Cornell instituted an astronomy major, but anyway, his point was well taken. I needed to major in a physical science. The irony in, in this as well, if I could perhaps deviate just a little bit, is that this was a terrible time for the physical sciences in the United States. The early 1970s, the war in Vietnam, the economy had all conspired to shrink the space program and even research in general. And so the stereotype was the physics PhD driving a taxi cab in New York City. Hmm. So about a year after I got this letter, I decided, no, I was going to be a medical doctor because I would never be able to make any money. I wouldn't get a job. So I wrote to Carl, and you know he was sort of understanding but he wrote back this kind of interesting letter, not sarcastic, but with a little twist, saying that medicine had something of the same excitement as astronomy, <laughs> uh, but with those caveats. And a year after that, I went back to astronomy, and it was because of another Cornell professor, Frank Drake. Professor Frank Drake is, of course, the originator of the famous Drake Equation and an instrumental figure in the foundation of SETI. Be sure to check out episode 26 of Strange New Worlds, where Elise Cutts and I watch the relevant Voyager episode Future's End and take a crack at evaluating the equation ourselves. He was giving a talk at downtown New York City, which is where I grew up. My pediatrician was a Cornell alum. He had a ticket to this talk, and uh, he gave it to me because he couldn't go. So I went downtown, I listened to this talk, and uh, I realized that I really was not nearly as interested in medicine as I was in astronomy. Mm -hmm. And so I flipped back again. Wow. That's... So Cornell played a big role in my career twice in putting me on the astronomy track. Yeah, and now you're a professor there. Now I'm a professor there, that's right. 
that's an amazing story and a really interesting insight, especially for younger people like me who, you know, I was born in the 90s. Yeah. No idea that the 1970s were such a, a terrible time for the physical sciences. So you're here at Caltech on sabbatical from Cornell. You've yes. been here for about the past six months or so? Yeah, almost seven months. And so last term in the spring, you used us as guinea pigs to test out a new course that you're developing specifically on ocean worlds. So for those listeners who aren't familiar with ocean worlds, could you describe what they are and why they're interesting to study? Absolutely. And by the way, I'll say that it was really terrific to be back here at Caltech. This is where I did my PhD in the early 1980s. And so it was just uh, a lot of fun to come back. Uh, Ocean worlds are places that have oceans of liquid, typically we would say liquid water, underneath their surfaces, uh, under the ice, let's say, or possibly on their surfaces, as in the case of the Earth. In addition to that, one ocean world, Titan, has large lakes and seas of liquid methane and possibly ethane and nitrogen on the surface. So these are bodies that have liquid that play crucial roles in the evolution and possibly in hosting life. And really, it's been only in the last 20 years that uh, it's been realized that places elsewhere in the solar system have large amounts of liquid water, starting with the discovery of liquid water under the ice on Europa. It's kind of mind-blowing to realize that most of the places in the solar system with liquid water aren't in the same flavor as Earth with liquid water exposed on its surface, but rather deep in their interiors, locked in the subsurface. That's right. If we've read the history of the solar system correctly from Mars and Venus, it looks like if you were to go back in time to the first 10% of the history of the solar system, exposed oceans would have been common. The Earth's oceans were established within the first half billion years based on the geologic record. Mars had standing bodies of liquid water at the time, and Venus may have still had an ocean even a half billion years after it formed. We don't quite know when it lost that ocean. But evidently, that's not a stable situation, and uh, the Earth is the one body out of those three that retained a surface liquid water ocean. The asteroid series, we have ample evidence that it probably had a lot of liquid water in its interior, an ocean there, but a lot of that has perhaps been lost, although not all of it. And so now in the outer solar system, Europa at Jupiter, uh, along with Ganymede and Callisto, at Saturn, Enceladus, and Titan, and possibly a couple of the other moons, have oceans under their surfaces. And we suspect that may be true for uh, Neptune's moon Triton and Pluto as well. Water, water everywhere. Liquid water everywhere. (laughs) That's the really interesting thing, because as far as we understand it, for any kind of life, you need a liquid medium in order to transport nutrients and waste products uh, into and out of the cell. And for life as we know it, it's liquid water. So having finished my course requirements a long time ago, I had no obligatory purpose for being in your class, but it was such a fascinating topic that I sat in on it anyway. And I, I wasn't alone in auditing the class. A couple of professors even showed up regularly. So that's, uh, that's an even extra honor for, for you. And you're definitely a veteran of space exploration. And it, you really showed this teaching the class. Um, In particular, I think you did a really good job of taking us through the logical steps of, okay, so here's a spacecraft, here's how it works, here's what it can do, here are the measurements that it makes, 
And here is how we interpret those measurements to come up with very profound implications for these planetary bodies. So in other words, I, th I thought you did a really good job of combining measurement and theory into understanding. And uh, for instance, the question of like how we know that these ocean worlds actually have oceans, it's, it's not because we've actually swum in any of those oceans. We haven't actually been in any of them. It's because we have all of this evidence that comes from magnetometer data, from gravity data, from mass spectrometers. And you showed us how we can interpret those data sets to come up with the really amazing conclusions that these bodies have huge amounts of liquid water inside of them. So obviously we learned a lot from you. And my question for you is, was there something that you learned by teaching this class for the very first time? Of course. It was, for me, a real learning experience because people contributed, particularly yourself and uh, the faculty and postdocs who sat in. Classes, good classes, are really dialogues between the professor and the students taking the class and whoever is sitting in. And I have to say that some of the undergraduates contributed as well. They're very smart here at Caltech. <laughs> so um, some of the things that I learned, first of all, were things that I forced myself to learn because to make a complete class in ocean worlds, you have to focus on things that you weren't directly involved in. So some of the issues of the gravitational mapping of these bodies, for example, I you know certainly spent a lot of time making sure I understood that so that I could convey that to the class. But there were other things, uh, for example, your work on epochs in Titan's history when methane may have been absent from the atmosphere and the chemistry of the upper atmosphere therefore may have been quite different. There would have been a much higher percentage of nitrogen-bearing compounds called nitriles that would have been deposited on the surface. And I knew something about that, but your paper that you pointed me to was, first of all, very quantitative in terms of calculating these things, and it changed my perspective on what we might learn by exploring the dunes on Titan. I would say that uh, some of the observational work that Mike Brown, a professor here, is doing, which he interjected from time to time, was very much a good complement to what I was talking about. The observational work by Mike Brown that Jonathan describes is planetary astronomy done using ground-based telescopes, such as the Keck telescope on Mauna Kea, Hawaii. Telescopes are an important and fruitful way of investigating the cosmos, but there's something so much more tangible about sending an actual spacecraft to get up close and personal with these strange new worlds. We would not know anything about these ocean worlds, the existence of these oceans, I should say, if it were not for solar system exploration. The existence of a class of bodies that have liquid water under their surfaces is known because we can send spacecraft out to these planets and moons, fly by them closely, interrogate them in many different ways with many different kinds of techniques, and uh, in some cases directly fly through the plume or land on the surface, uh, the first for Enceladus, the second for Titan. So it is an object lesson of what exploration in which you actually go to the objects that you're exploring can do in changing our perspective on the cosmos. That's great. 
So as you know, this is a science and Star Trek podcast uh-huh. aiming okay. to examine the intersection between science and science fiction. So Jonathan, what's your history with Star Trek? So my history with Star Trek is that uh, my parents watched it on a black and white TV and the first season was shown after my bedtime. And so <laughs> my first view of Star Trek was walking into my parents' bedroom to say goodnight and looking at the show on TV where these people in these kind of interesting uniforms were standing on a strange planet. And I eventually, I guess, negotiated the right to watch it in the evening. (laughs) It was immediately completely absorbing. It was sort of astonishing that they had not mentioned it to me, my parents at first. And it became almost an obsession, I would say. Of course, there were only really two and a half or three seasons. And uh, it was a tremendous disappointment when uh, the, the series was canceled. But by that point, it was in my imagination and part of my psyche. To the following extent, my parents had a lot of trouble. My, my father was uh, an alcoholic. It severely affected his emotional and uh, mental capabilities. Our family was more or less falling apart. I had a younger sister. And things were really not good in the house, and um, I would say a year or two after the series ended, to the point where I began to actually fantasize that perhaps I really wasn't Jonathan Lenin human being. I was Jonathan Lenin half Vulcan, half human being. And that I was actually going to be beamed back aboard the Starship Enterprise. I even picked a date. It was New Year's Eve of maybe 1971 or 72, I can't remember which. This was sort of preteen teenagers effort to just get out of there mm-hmm. of course as history has demonstrated the enterprise didn't come back to pick me up i was not <laughs> beamed aboard in spite of the fact that i made sure i stood well away from my parents at the time of the uh, enterprise should have arrived so they wouldn't get caught in the transporter beam well nothing happened so subsequent to that i went to star trek conventions had a great time with those um My wife and I watched uh, Next Generation after we got married. That was something we really enjoyed and shared. And uh, it's been part of my cultural milieu for my entire life. Well, even though the Enterprise didn't beam you up on that fateful day, you have basically lived a life that is as close to Star Trek as possible. In Star Trek, we follow the valiant crews of various exploratory starships in the 22nd through 24th centuries. And for 28 years, you've been a part of the crew, if you will, of one of humanity's most prolific scientific spacecraft to date, which is Cassini. Jonathan, could you tell us about your history on the Cassini mission, in particular, what the timeline for the Cassini mission was because it, it was such a huge flagship mission for NASA. And I know those are really huge undertakings. Yes. So so what is the timeline for Cassini from inception to grand finale and where do you enter into all sure. of that? Sure. When Voyager 1 and 2 flew through the Saturn system in 1980 and 1981, they discovered so many cool things that planetary scientists wanted to go back to Saturn in much the same way that they were going to Jupiter with an orbiter mission and a probe. So Jupiter was Galileo and the Galileo probe which went into Jupiter's atmosphere. For Saturn, the big question was do we send a probe into Saturn's atmosphere or through the atmosphere of Titan, which Voyager 1 had discovered to be very thick, very massive, mostly nitrogen with some methane, 
it couldn't really see the surface and so that was one of the big mysteries that people wanted to solve. So the period of the 1980s was a period of studies of what you would do with such a mission. The more senior scientists in particular Wing Ip and Daniel Gauthier in Europe and Toby Owen in the United States pushed their respective agencies for a joint mission ultimately to be successful in 1989 when both agencies agreed to undertake this. And then to just quickly go through the rest of the timeline, the official mission start was 1990, instruments were selected, launch was in 1997, arrival at Saturn in 2004, the Huygens probe landed in January of 2005 on Titan, and then the orbiter, Saturn orbiter, through several extended missions, continued to operate until September of 2017 when it was nearly out of maneuvering fuel and it was then burned up in Saturn's atmosphere. And we had our very last Project Science Group meeting just yesterday, uh, July the uh, 26th, I believe, and that's, that's end of mission. Now, I was a graduate student here at Caltech when Voyager 1 flew through the Saturn system and made a close flyby of Titan. There were a number of mysteries related to how methane could be resupplied from uh, the surface or externally because there's plenty of it in the atmosphere, but it was unstable chemically. We know that. So much of my thesis was involved with this question, including whether there might be oceans at the surface, oceans of both methane and ethane, uh, methane being the source and ethane being the sink of the chemistry. And this garnered a lot of attention. Now, in the end, it turns out that Titan doesn't have a massive ocean, but it has lakes and seas of methane, and it might have had a more massive ocean in the past. My thesis advisor, David Stevenson, who's a professor here at Caltech, invited me to talk to a visiting committee of scientists who were meeting at JPL in 1984, I believe, 83 or 84, to look at future missions to the outer solar system, and they wanted to hear about the surface of Titan. Mm. That was my first entree into the pre-Cassini studies. Charles Alachi, who was the director of JPL many years after, in 1985, I believe, invited me uh, to be part of a think tank session on how you would use a radar at Titan. And then these things, um, along with the fact that my main postdoctoral advisor was Donald Hunton, a distinguished planetary scientist, now passed away, was heavily involved in the planning. He got me to two meetings uh, in Europe involved in Cassini planning. So I was heavily involved through the 1980s. I proposed when the time came to be an interdisciplinary scientist for Titan's surface for the Huygens probe part of the mission. So I applied to uh, the European Space Agency. In case you didn't catch it, the Huygens probe was the part of the Cassini mission that detached from the main orbiter, parachuted through Titan's atmosphere, and landed on the surface of Saturn's largest moon. Built and run by the European Space Agency, it contained instruments that were able to sample the atmosphere and image the surface of Titan during descent and after landing. And then I was asked to be on the radar team when Charles Alachi was selected to form that team. So I was on both the orbiter and the probe as an interdisciplinary scientist. So Jonathan's role on the Cassini mission is that of interdisciplinary scientist. 
Now that's obviously not a redshirt role, or else he wouldn't have lasted nearly this long. That title, though, is still a pretty vague term, reminding me of the ad hoc science specialist position that Captain Lorca offered Michael Burnham in Star Trek's latest rendition, Discovery. So, what does interdisciplinary scientist really mean? That role means this, that you don't develop an instrument, but you make sure that the science that the instruments are being developed for can actually get done. Mm. And so I was a kind of a, a roving scientist. I didn't have the responsibility of building an instrument, but I had the same status as the principal investigators and team leads. And so I helped to push for all the things we needed on the spacecraft, more data storage, better satellite tours, and uh, I was involved in the development of the Huygens probe. We pushed very, very hard there to have the probe survive to the surface. That was a big uphill battle with ESA management, European Space Agency management. And so that had become, through the 90s, a big part of my life. And um, the rest now is history. Most of my scientific work has been on Titan. Uh, most of my papers are on Titan. I will tell you one story, though, because you said that to some extent I've been able to live the Star Trek dream. Mm -hmm. I've always been a little bit conflicted about whether astronauts who go up on the space shuttle to the space station or planetary scientists who explore strange new worlds from the ground are the real precursors of Star Trek. <laughs> I suppose both are. Yeah. But the most Star Trekian moment I had was when the Huygens probe landed on Titan. And I was with the Huygens Probe Science Team in Darmstadt, Germany, at the European Space Operations Center, where the data were coming back. They were fed through the orbiter to the Deep Space Network that NASA operated, and then right to ESOX, because it was European data. I was invited to sit with the camera team, which was going to get their images, and everything was downloaded after the landing. It wasn't in real time. So uh, the camera team was in a porta cabin, kind of a mobile home, on the ESOC site. This is the middle of winter, it's dark, it's cold, felt a little bit like Titan. And there are 20 of us in this cabin. We knew the data came back, we we're just waiting for it to be batched and sent to us. And no one had ever seen the surface of Titan. It was covered with haze, there were some radar data, but no one had seen it up close. And the moment came, and Bashar Risk, who was operating the computer, said, the data are here. I'm going to show the thumbnails about once per second. And for the next three or four minutes, we saw these flashes, thumbnails, of the surface of an alien moon that no human eyes had ever seen. There we were locked in this porta cabin. It might as well have been a space station sitting on the surface of Titan or in orbit around Titan getting the data back from the first probe that uh, we had sent there. And when we saw the gullies that were carved into this icy hillside, which had to be gullies of methane, I screamed, a lot of other people screamed, because there it was. Titan really did rain methane. Methane really did collect on the surface. And we spent the rest of the evening putting this mosaic together. As we did this piece by piece, it just looked both Earth-like and incredibly alien at the same time. And it was lack of sleep, being isolated, and having data from a world that humans had never seen before. I was in a really, really strange state of mind, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. 
That's a truly amazing story. Wow. What I uh, wouldn't give for a time machine that would bring me back to that that point in time to it, experience it, that with you. It was great. The one resentment I had was when other people from the project started coming into our porta cabin. You know, they opened the door, and my first instinct was, "Don't open the door. You're going to let all the oxygen out." You know, there's, <laughs> there's no oxygen on Titan. But uh, in they came, and gradually more and more people saw this stuff. But it was it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. So I had a really amazing experience surrounding Cassini as well, but surrounding Cassini's eventual demise. So Mm. I was outside on Beckman Mall here at Caltech's campus at about 4 a.m. on September 15 last year to witness Cassini's grand finale, as it's called. And Caltech and JPL put on a really amazing show with huge outdoor screens broadcasting NASA TV feeds and images and movies of the Saturnian system set to really, really dramatic music. Uh, And of course, they displayed Cassini's final signals home. And I honestly felt like I was at a movie premiere. And indeed, JPL was just nominated for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Original Interactive Program for its coverage of Cassini's grand finale. And Jonathan, you were there too. So what was it like for you to be there at that moment, at that celebration, but also this ending of this very long-lived mission? To be honest, it was a relief when it was over because all of us who worked on the mission knew when it was going to happen. We knew that it had to happen because the spacecraft was running out of maneuvering fuel, which meant that it would go, if we didn't burn it up into Saturn, there was a possibility that it could strike Enceladus, which would be very bad in terms of planetary protection, potentially. And we didn't want that to happen. So to quote the ending title of a Next Generation, the last episode, All Good Things, mm-hmm. right? And must come to an end. And that whole week was just full of so many endings, you know, the last radar data, the last uh, imaging data, and, and, and even the project science group activities where we no longer had any planning left to do. These were all like little deaths in a way. And so when it finally came time for Cassini to enter Saturn's atmosphere and burn up, it was a relief. You know, we knew it had to happen, but it was just going through that process. I don't like to anthropomorphize spacecraft, but it's a little bit like a dying process. You know, you're ready for the end. And um, it was so magnificently done, Cassini, in, in every sense that even the entry into the atmosphere was targeted precisely and the ending happened within a few seconds of the prediction which was you know really amazing given the fact that we don't know the density of Saturn's atmosphere all that well the thing that I felt really sad about was saying goodbye to those people who had done the mission design and the flight control through many 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 years that was the toughest part I think Uh, was to uh, see them go away. Uh, Some of them are working on other missions that I'm working on, like Juno. Others we don't see again. And there was a little bit of that again this week because as the last Project Science Group meeting uh, where we were wrapping up and archiving things, it was another goodbye. So um, it's all good. This is the kind of thing where an enormous amount of new information is on the ground and available to scientists everywhere, uh, including yourself, and those data will be worked on for years and decades. Cassini will continue to live through the 
discoveries that we make from the data that it returned. And so uh, in many ways it was a joyous celebration of the incredible uh, accomplishments that that one mission did in the Saturn system, in that one place in our solar system. It's amazing. Cassini plunging into Saturn's atmosphere has been depicted in numerous artist illustrations, and every single one of them reminds me of the sight of the USS Enterprise streaking into the Genesis planet's atmosphere to its final resting place in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. As Jonathan said, Cassini's work isn't done, as tons and tons of data are still lying in wait, eager to be analyzed by the next generation of planetary scientists. And just as a new enterprise would soon be built, new missions through the Saturnian system are rapidly being proposed. One of those concepts, as we shall soon see, was captained by none other than Jonathan Lunin. Well, Star Trek is all about exploring strange new worlds and seeking out new life and new civilizations. It presents not just an optimistic view of humanity, but also of the field of astrobiology, which is the study of the origins and distribution and evolution of life throughout the universe. And you are one of the most successful astrobiologists to date and in many ways have helped pioneer this field. But still, some regard astrobiology as a sort of fringe science, even a pseudoscience. There's a bit of a laugh factor that's been associated with it. So you've observed astrobiology mature over the years. How do you think it's changed as a scientific field, and how do you think its perception has changed, too? Well, I remember even when planetary science was something of a fringe field. When I went to UCLA as a visiting assistant professor, I taught a course called Ices in the Solar System. And I was at a faculty party about a month after I got there, and I was introduced to a chemist. And he said, uh, what do you do? And I explained I'm a planetary scientist and that I was teaching a course on ices in the solar system, which was mostly about the um, icy moons of the outer solar system. And he looked at me, said, oh, that's cute, <laughs> and walked away. So, uh, you know, it's not one of the mother sciences, but we've learned so much since 1986, that was 31 years ago, that people don't think it's cute anymore. They actually think it's serious. The way that astrobiology has matured is that it has congealed from different disciplines, exobiology being one that goes a long way back, passed through the Viking landings into the 50s and 40s on theories of the origin of life. And it's really now become merged in a harmonious way with planetary exploration in the sense that people who are biologists or design life detection instruments are now very much engaged with the planetary scientists in both the data that are coming back and designing future missions. And so with the Europa Lander uh, science definition team, which I served on a year or so ago, in that room were not only planetary scientists and JPL and APL engineers, but there were biologists, marine biologists and biochemists, and it was all very serious stuff in terms of designing experiments. And that, I think, has really been the major maturation that astrobiology has gone through. I have to credit for this the NASA Astrobiology Institute, which was 
The vision of a few people at NASA Ames, Jerry Soffin, David Morrison, a few others. I apologize to anyone who's listening who was part of that. But <laughs> that's now more than 20 years old. And by giving astrobiology a home within the NASA hierarchy, and by providing an anchor for international astrobiology efforts as well, it has really matured the field. The NASA Astrobiology Institute has really matured the field. You know, even leaving aside the various teams that work under that funding, just the existence has done that. And the discoveries that have been made now at Mars, uh, in terms of this very complex history involving water at multiple sites, uh, the discovery of the ocean worlds in the outer solar system, the exploration in detail of the ocean of Enceladus by proxy, by flying through the plume and detecting organics and salts and products of hydrothermal systems, the exploration of Titan to detect the hydrocarbon seas and to engender a whole cottage industry of, of speculations about exotic life that could exist in liquid methane, and Europa, which uh, we have waited so long to explore after the Galileo discovery of an ocean back in uh, the late 1990s. Now we finally have a chance to do the measurements there that Cassini did at Enceladus and determine whether the European Ocean is or isn't habitable and then to go look for life. So all of these discoveries have energized the field and have brought into sync with the planetary science all of the work that's being done on origin of life and biochemistry on extremophiles that have gone on in parallel and now uh, is really in dialogue with the exploration. And that has, I think, made astrobiology a fully mature scientific endeavor. Excellent. Now, your desire to seek out new life or the possibilities of life elsewhere spurred you to develop a new mission concept called yes. the Enceladus Life Finder. Now, unfortunately, the Enceladus Life Finder, or do you call it ELF? Is ELF, that, yes, you call that's it ELF. right. Yeah. Okay, cool. So um, ELF wasn't selected to be funded under uh, NASA's recent mission program round, uh, despite the fact that I was heavily rooting for it. Mm. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, how would ELF have searched for life on Enceladus. Actually, first of all, since we haven't spoken too much about Enceladus, mm. um, tell us about why Enceladus is such a prime candidate for searching for life, and then tell us about how ELF would have done yeah. that. So Enceladus is the tiny moon of Saturn, not tiny, but small. It's about 500 kilometers across, that's diameter, and it was suspected even from the time of Voyager when uh, these very bright uh, images, somewhat devoid of craters, were seen, that something was going on. And when Cassini arrived very, very quickly, both through the magnetometer and imaging, a large plume of gas and particles was discovered pouring out of the south polar region of Enceladus. And subsequent high-resolution images showed that this big plume was fed by jets of material. They may be in the form of curtains or they may be discrete jets coming out of fractures in the south polar region. Those fractures, after some debate, it's pretty clear that they connect with a subsurface ocean. Cassini discovered in two distinct ways the presence of a global liquid water ocean underneath the ice crust of Enceladus, perhaps as close as five kilometers at the pole, but maybe on average 30 to 40 kilometers under the surface. Once the plume was discovered and it was determined that Cassini could safely 
fly through the plume because it luckily carried mass spectrometers, devices for actually sniffing, collecting gas and dust and measuring their composition, it was possible to directly measure the composition of the plume. And so through about seven fly-throughs when the mass spectrometers were used, and other observations of what's called the E-ring, which is material from the plume that is now in orbit around Saturn, it was possible to put together a chemical picture of the ocean. Of course, there's water. The water ice particles contain salt. The biggest ice grains have about a half to two percent uh, salt. That's about um, half uh, the amount that's in the Earth's oceans. The Earth's oceans are four percent. So they're salty, and that's that in fact was an indication that the grains are from the ocean. They're frozen droplets of seawater. And then in that material were organic molecules, uh, light organics like methane, but also in the grains, heavier organics that could go up to six or eight or ten carbons and beyond, in fact. In addition to the organic molecules, there's nitrogen, ammonia was detected, and in the E-ring material, these very tiny grains, these are nanometers in size, billionths of a meter in size, made of nearly pure SiO2, silicon dioxide, indicate that the water is in contact with rock at the base of the ocean. We also know that from modeling because the pressures are not high enough for an intervening layer of high pressure ice. But this water is cycling through the rock evidently, leaching the SiO2 out, and then that's precipitating out in the cooler waters before it's ejected into space. Well, where does the SiO2 come from? Presumably, it's a reaction product between the water and the rock, a process called serpentinization, which may be responsible for the methane as well. There's carbon dioxide, I should mention, and chlorine and sodium, and the list is big. So the last fly-through was a search for hydrogen, which would also be a product of the chemistry between the rock and the liquid water, and that was found. So everything that Cassini has told us about the ocean suggests that the ingredients necessary to sustain life are present. Now there are questions about the acidity, the pH is rather high, there are questions about the abundance of hydrogen, it seems to be coming out with a flux that's quite large compared to what you would expect if organisms were eating this material up. But the bottom line is to know whether in fact there is life or is not life is now the key question for Enceladus. If there is life, it would be one of the greatest discoveries of science. A system so far from the Earth that that life almost certainly had a separate origin. If there is no life, we want to know why. Is it just the conditions aren't quite right or is there something really special about what happened on the Earth to make life possible? So the next step in all this, from my point of view, was to go back to Enceladus and in the context of these smaller so-called PI or principal investigator lead missions to try to do the safest and most robust experiment you can that would detect life. And that would be to do what Cassini did, to fly a spacecraft repeatedly through the plume of Enceladus carrying mass spectrometers but now mass spectrometers that weren't 1980s technology but are the technology of today with a much better mass resolution, a much greater range of atomic masses, a much higher sensitivity so that molecules of life 
can be detected, amino acids, fatty acids, isotopes, and so forth. So the concept was measure these things, resolve all of the ambiguities that come from the rather coarse resolution that the Cassini instruments had, and determine the pattern of abundances of different classes of organic molecules, because those patterns are different in an active biological system than they are in an abiotic or non-biological system. In fact, we see the non-biological pattern in meteorites, we see it in laboratory experiments. So that was the concept. Don't bring anything fancy. Bring mass spectrometers, fly through, and do the experiments. Unfortunately, ELF wasn't selected for the 2017 round of NASA's New Frontiers mission program. Instead, the two mission concept finalists were Dragonfly, a drone that would fly through the skies of Titan, landing to take measurements at myriad locations on its surface, and Caesar, a mission that would return samples from Comet 67P to laboratories here on Earth. While both are extraordinarily exciting, this leaves us with a little hole in our astrobiological program, an Enceladus-sized one to be exact. So where does that leave us? It leaves us, in my view, with the imperative to do something. <laughs> to, you know, I mean, I would love it to be ELF, but at this point, the most important issue is we need to get back to Enceladus with life detection and chemical analyzers. If we are serious about solar system exploration as being an important part being a search for life beyond the Earth. Here is a location where we must do that search because the ocean has the basic ingredients for habitability. It's showing that there is hydrothermal activity going on. We just need to take the next step and look for life and I hope that will happen quickly but to be honest with you I don't actually know when the next opportunity is going to be. Well, that leads into my final question for mm -hmm. you, Jonathan, which is, if you had to guess, where do you think we might find evidence for life in the universe first? Will it be Mars or one of the icy moons that we've been discussing, Europa, Enceladus, uh, Titan? Or do you think we'll get spectra from exoplanets first that indicate that faraway terrestrial worlds contain life? Or do you think we'll just have to, to wait for the Vulcans to visit Earth? I always try to phrase this answer in such a way that I'm not arguing that we know that life begins wherever there are habitable environments. This is the big gap at this point. So I prefer to answer the question by saying, where is our best shot at discovering life most quickly? And my answer is it's Enceladus. We, we have a way of sampling Enceladus because that moon is pouring its ocean out into space. Free samples. Free, free samples. samples, and we just need to go collect them. Europa, probably in terms of places that had formed life and sustained it, might be slightly better than Enceladus just because it's so much bigger. But we don't know if there are organic molecules there. We don't know if there are hydrothermal systems at the base of the ocean. So we need to do Europa Clipper before assessing whether it's a good place to look for life. So in that sense, I put Europa slightly behind Enceladus. And then Titan as a place to look for 
exotic chemical processes and of an environment chemically different from the earth to see whether something like life might arise that's a great place to go and I would go to the shores of the of the seas or the seas themselves to look for that and so I think the solar system is where the action is and I think it's the outer solar system that's where that action is and if I had to put a priority order on it I would say Enceladus followed very closely by Europa followed by Titan. Well that wraps things up uh, I just want to thank you again Jonathan for joining me on Strange New Worlds and thank you for all of your fun stories and your expertise and for your support on a personal level for all of my scientific endeavors. Well, I am thrilled to be collaborating with you on the second edition of my book. It is already a lot of fun and it's a pleasure to be working with you. So thank you, Mike, very, very much. That concludes episode 41 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Professor Jonathan Lunin. I remember the first time I ever saw Jonathan give a talk. I was a first-year graduate student, nervous about passing my qualifying exam, still dipping my toes into scientific research. I was starstruck by this well-spoken, highly respected scientist whose name I had seen on numerous acclaimed research papers and books. He ended his talk in an unusual way, by making an emotional appeal to the audience that it is time to romanticize the idea of planetary exploration once again, just as it had been romanticized in the 1970s, when as a kid he had read Carl Sagan's The Cosmic Connection, An Extraterrestrial Perspective, and fell in love with the idea of setting foot on an alien world. People don't see it that way anymore. Mercury, Venus, Mars, the planets next door appear either desiccated cratered wastelands or satanic saunas. But the ocean worlds, Jonathan argued, had the unique potential to reignite that flame of exploration. Sail the seas of Titan, scuba dive Europa's ocean, taste the plumes of Enceladus. I hope this episode has kindled a passion for the ocean worlds in you. And I can't wait for the day that Star Trek takes us on a journey to one of these incredibly exotic, incredibly fascinating worlds. Until next time, see you out there.